Okay, if you've got a Bible, could you please turn to Exodus chapter 17, verses 1. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved from the wilderness of sin by stages. Ah, that's it, we're away. According to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirst there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you, and there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massah, and Meribah, because of the quarrelling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, "Is the Lord among you or not?" Uh, we uh, continue our way through uh, the life of Moses, and this morning we're coming to uh, the final stage of Israel's journey uh, to Sinai. But this. Uh, Oasis of Rephidim turns out to be another one of those examples of uh, Israel's faithfulness and uh, God's patience and mercy. I need to do that, don't I? There we go. Sorry, I should have clicked it. Remember that on the way to Sinai, that four crises appear in Israel's experience. There's a lack of drinking water that we saw that in Marah. Then they go out to the wilderness, pass through Elim, and there's a shortage of food, and uh, that's where you get the manna and the quail from. And then we come to this shortage of water, and then finally a group of desert people attacks them, and they have to cope with that. Now, I don't know whether you like me, but in reading uh, the book of Exodus, sometimes what we can do is that we can uh, underestimate it because it appears to us as a story. And uh, I want to encourage us not to underestimate the impact on these people, which we will come back to. At the same time, uh, we have already seen that there's a pattern a strange pattern that occurs in their lives and seems to sometimes occur in our lives. First of all, they're on a journey that they don't want to go on. I don't like this. I'd rather do something else. Thank you. Hands up with that. Yes, that's, yeah, don't do it. We'll have a big ministry time. So there's a journey, but they don't want the journey to be like that. Then there's a test Uh, that happens while they're on the journey because all journeys are fantastic and we really enjoy ourselves, aren't they? But then the journey goes wrong. Then they complain and then Moses, on behalf of them, intercedes and then there's a deliverance. Not a pattern that you and I are familiar with, I can see. But despite Israel's failure and even despite the fact that God does not judge them, 
He seems to constantly extend grace and mercy to them despite their faithfulness and disobedience. And there is a reason which we will come to is that actually God is trying to teach them important and gigantic lessons. And I wonder whether that is your or my case. I wonder whether you are journeying and don't like it. And I wonder whether, you know, you are sort of, uh, you know, you are in the middle of sort of your period of testing. I wonder whether you are grumbling like I can do and actually some of the part of the reason is that you and I have yet to learn the lesson that God is teaching us. The things that actually befall Israel in the wilderness on the way to Sinai do reflect very harsh realities of life in the wilderness. Following God is actually not going to be easy. I'll just repeat that just in case you think it is. Following God is not actually going to be that easy. This was going to be hard stuff. And along the hard stuff, it was going to, uh, it was going to require incredibly courageous faith. Have we got this? It's hard, but it requires incredible faith. Maybe you just need to turn to each other and it's going to be hard and it's going to require incredible faith because they are facing both the cruelties of nature and the cruelties of man. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? We're going to have to face those two very things. Their needs are very real. Now, when I ask you to trust God in your circumstances, which is, of course, what I'm going to do, I'm going to say, well, Chris, I know that you're not hearing, you know, going to, but actually that's what the preacher's going to do, isn't he? He's going to say, come on, I need you to trust God. Firstly, I don't want to downplay yours. And the reason that I don't want to downplay your circumstances is that I don't want us to downplay what these guys were going through. This is not a bunch of idiots messing up sort of life. And when I say that Israel should have trusted God, I'm not saying that they should have trusted God because really it wasn't as bad as what you're going through. No, these were real trials. What we're saying is, which we'll discover later, is that these trials are placed in Scripture so that you and I can learn, so that we don't get our fingers burnt and our toes in places that we shouldn't go, and then think, I'll just ring Nigel or Dave Sinkins to get me out of here. That's what the book of Exodus is about. The book of Exodus partly is about prevention so that we don't have to go there. And that's what some of the... Which is amazing. Don't you now want to go to heaven, meet those millions of people and say, thank you for saving me. The answer that you're just a bit unsure about is actually because you, like me, have been a complete burke and done exactly what you shouldn't have done, which is that we haven't read the book of Exodus and we've fallen into the same trap. You don't have to agree with that because I know. Okay. So the idea is that what we're saying is that they are in Scripture so that we can avoid their pain. So it's all about there. 
And there is a negative lesson which we'll come to a little bit later, alongside the positive lesson of God's grace. Now, how do I know all that? Am I just making it up so that I can fill some time in and get to the three points that every preacher has? Yes, no. (laughs) Because it tells me that in 1 Corinthians 10. Paul tells us that the exodus is there so that we can learn. And Paul emphasizes that the wilderness experience actually happened for us. Can you imagine that? That God takes a people out of Egypt and takes them across the wilderness and eventually to the promised land just for you. That's quite big, isn't it? Do you not not think? Yeah, that's big. You know, I might buy my kids at Easter. Seems to be for the rest of my life an, uh, an Easter egg. And I seem to be able to never get out of it, however go. They even have that look on their face of expectancy that the Easter egg will occur. And I sort of think, yes, I know that I'm... But can you imagine that two million, three million, several million people went all through this extraordinary experience for you? It is mad, isn't it? It is balmy. Paul says that it happened for us, that it was written down for us. The reason that God in his mercy had God had Moses write these down was for the benefit of you and I. Now what that doesn't do is deny that the Old Testament uh, guys um, uh, could get something from it, because they could. But what it means is that when we are looking at these stories, we are looking with, with them eager to get ourselves out of the situations that we're in. That what we're not doing is saying, look, this is a musty old story about desert and sand and waters and Egyptians and pyramids and stuff like that. And we're not looking at it. No, what we're saying is that we're opening the book of Exodus and saying, this is a lie for me. This is going to breathe something into me. This is going to practically help me. This is truth. It can change me. We'll also find that the Apostle Paul says this, that you can find Jesus all over the wilderness if you look for him. We're going to come back to that right at the very end. And then what the Apostle Paul says is that these events are largely bound up in teaching us not to act. And what he's teaching us here is what is called a negative instructional purpose. Now, you have all been involved in negative instructional purposes. I'll give you one, and then you can think of one, but don't tell me because you'll be at it all day. Here's the negative thing that comes. Imagine that I'm in a cricket match, and I'm sitting in the crowd, and I've got somebody younger than me that's next to me. And out goes Paul Collingwood to bat, and he doesn't last very long, which is a bit normal at the moment. And what, I wanted, and what I do is I say to the, the guy that was sitting next to me, I say, you see how that guy is standing? You see how that guy is batting? Don't you do it that way because if you do it that way, you will get out. You'll last three minutes. You'll never hit the ball. You'll get a duck. Don't do it that way. 
Now, most of us have been involved in negative instructional things, haven't we? We've said to our kids, and I won't embarrass mine, don't do that because if you do that, and then something happens, doesn't it? We seem to tell them, and they don't do it. But this is what the Apostle Paul is saying. The Apostle Paul is saying that this wilderness stuff, this exodus stuff, is literally there so that you don't do it. That's what it's about. So, let me ask you, how many people have learned? Now, let's not ask that question. Okay, a few more things then. Our passage seems to also be yet another passage where the people grumble. They have grumbled from Egypt to here. Can you imagine leading these people? They've grumbled. And the people grumble against Moses, but in grumbling against Moses, they are grumbling against the Lord. Now, this is an interesting perspective, because in grumbling, what they are actually saying to Moses and they're actually saying to God is that we don't want it this way Lord and actually we can't trust you oh that's what they're saying the grumbling reflects a distrust of God's provision remember what they first said they said to Moses why did we ever leave Egypt what does that mean It means, Moses, you are not giving us what we need. You're not giving us what we need. What we really need is to go back to Egypt and then we get what we need. And I wonder whether you're like me. I wonder whether subconsciously in our mind when things occur that what we are actually doing, but, but we're not yet, we've not faced up to the reality, is that we're questioning the way that God does things and the way that God provides what the Bible calls his providence. What does that mean? It means that we question his provision and look somewhere else for help. And that temptation will be a key temptation in Israel. And it will be something that they never, ever overcome. Never, ever overcome. Here it is at the outset, and they will go through it. And here's the way that they'll go through it. They'll go through it when the law is given. They'll say that that's not good enough. They'll go through it when they ask for a king. They'll say that's not good enough. They'll go through it when they get given centralised laws and government in Jerusalem. They'll say that's not good enough. They'll say when the prophets come, that's not good enough. And eventually when a saviour arrives, they will say that's not good enough. That's not right. Now I don't know whether you're like me. I look at all this thing and think, I just would not question God. Not smart. Because you, you just think, any minute now, it's going to be one of those lightnings that always meets Mrs. Callie, but it's me on the nose. It's going to be one of those moments. But actually, I think that this lesson 
is very appropriate for us. Because what will happen is that we will come to situations in our life and we will have to face things in our life and we will find ourselves saying to God, I would like it done this way and if it's not done this way, Lord, I'm going to trust some other means. So Paul's words are actually very, very appropriate to us. Because we are still yet learning that we think that God should do it our way. Let's just clear something out. God does it his way. He doesn't do it your way. He does it his way. How do I know that? Because if, if he does it my way, that means I am God. That's it. I have made myself a God. That's actually what the Roman Empire struggled with when they were talking about should they be gods and all that sort of stuff. They just made people do it our way, so that, their way. So they became gods. That's what we think. Let me just teach you something. Please, God will do it his way. We always submit to him. So, we've said that several times that uh, God is amongst other things, teaching the children of Israel to live in the wilderness. Now, living by grace, living by this, as it were, entails trusting God to provide, trusting that his wisdom is right when he's leading us, trusting that he knows where we should go. It means all of this, but it actually means that I am settled with it. I'm settled with it. And I, want to just, I mean, I just find that so difficult for me personally. And maybe you're not going to admit this, but I'm going to admit this to you. It is extremely hard, but it is what we get when it's, it's where peace actually comes. When we say, I will trust you, Lord. I will trust you to provide for me. I will go where you want me to go and if it works out like that, I will still do it. That's the key. That's what God is teaching them. He's teaching them so that we can learn. And it's something, again, we have to settle in our heart. But also, what God is teaching them before... It's a big introduction, this, isn't it? What God is teaching them He's he's going to teach them how to become not only the people of God, but a people who will follow God and become worshippers of God. These people would become his worshippers. They would eventually become and they would have a tabernacle and a temple. And suddenly they would be known as the worshippers of God. And by the time you would see Solomon in all his glory building this incredible temple to the worship of God, that is how the other nations of the world would know them. They would say, oh, well, these people over here, they worship them. But these people, they worship God. And it would be demonstrated by a magnificent temple and the priests that would go into it and all sorts of different things. Now, ask yourself this question. How do you teach people to become worshippers? I know. You send them to the Brighton Conference. What we do is we go to Auntie Maureen, who writes the checks, and we say, let's send 
60 people to the Brighton Conference. Let's pay for them. Hotels. They can get there early. Let's even pay for train fares so they don't have to go around the M25. We could even hire a helicopter. Let's do it. Let's do it well. We could land it on Brighton Beach. Let them all in. Okay, that's one way. Here's the other way to teach you how to worship God. Take you out of slavery and place you in the wilderness. What? Surely I should go to CCK's worship weekends. No? What they were saying is that these people should become worshippers. How do you learn worship? You learn worship when you prove God in the wilderness. That brings you into a corporate setting and you praise God out of a dynamic reality that God has met you in the wilderness. This is your training ground for heaven. This is your training ground for life. I've proved God in the wilderness. We gather corporately. We worship him because he is great. What happens in the wilderness when you don't prove God? When you gather, you've got nothing to say, nothing to bring. You bring in your own effort. It's like the wilderness has been dragged into the corporate setting. And Phil Harmon starts off with that fast one. And all you want to do is what happened, is, this has been said to me, is that I'd rather drink coffee. Why? Because you need to prove God in the wilderness so that you can worship him when we gather. This wilderness experience is about preparing you for heaven. Don't get there and be shocked. Learn, become a worshipper in the wilderness. Okay, three points then. First point, here we go. What does that say? The people of God are tried and read. That was a massive thing. What did you write that down? Okay, first, if you look at verses 1 to 3, here is the situation and the response. Once again, we come to a circumstance of trial and we see how Israel responds. Unbelief. Now, Let me just clear this out. Again, the circumstances are hard. The reaction is understandable. But here is the lesson. This is the the trial is a basic issue for the life of faith. If you want to be a person of faith, we we have got to learn this lesson. You have, some of you are, and all of you will, face trials similar to this one. Now, you may not be wanting literally to drink water, but there may be a situation in your life where you think, what in the world is God doing right now? Wondered that one? <laughs> just, uh, that's just my life. I just wonder like all the time. You might wonder why things are not working out the way that you thought they would work out. You may be thinking, what I can't work out is, if God is wise and loves me, why is it like this? Strange but true. Here it is. The, the trial that is being faced 
is a basic issue of spiritual life. It is just simply that, that God is trying to teach you about faith and what it means to trust him. He is trying to help you to become dependent on him and to learn faith. How do we know that? Let's look at this. The passage begins in verse 1. And it tells us that the people are journeying from different stages in the wilderness of sin. Now that's a name, isn't it? According to the command of the Lord. So here it is. They think that everything is going wrong, but the Lord records that they are going at his beckoning. Here's the first thing. Whatever you think that you are going through, you and I, you portray it as wrong. The God never portrays it as that. He never says this is an accident. Here's our first thing. We have to in, put our, our thinking in line with his thinking. We have to actually say, this is not an accident. I don't believe this. This has purpose. God knows what he's doing. He's in charge. He knows best. We have to put ourselves into, we almost have to speak those things out into the situation that we're in. We have to say, no, this is not an accident. Secondly, I want you to note my clever understanding of theology and scripture. Here it is. There was no water. You can see I've done a lot of work in this. There was no water. Now I know that's obvious, but I want you to see the way that this can be worked out. Because there could have been several reasons why there is no water. There could have been a drought. The Amalekites who would attack them later, maybe they were guarding the wells and maybe they couldn't get at them. Maybe it is just difficult to carry an enormous amount of water for several million people. So you just can't. You've got to live, as it were, to the next oasis. What do the theologians think about the fact there is no water? What do the brainy people say? Here's what the brainy people say. We don't know why there was no water. <laughs> Here it comes. Not only does God perceive that this is not an accident, but sometimes you and I will go into situations where we do not understand an earth of what is going on. We just have to face it. Sometimes things happen, we don't know why. It's just... That was bizarre. That's a bit bonkers. But we don't know. And I don't know whether, I don't know whether you are a, an analyzer or what. Some people have to put things in little orders. Well, if that happens Tuesday, that must happen Wednesday. And those little organizers, and that sort of thing. And they go, oh, no, it's all gone wrong. I, this is not revelation. But it is true. Sometimes... We just have to live with the facts that we will not know why things have turned out this way. And that's the issue of the psalmist. I will still worship the Lord anyway. That's what the psalmist said. I don't understand it, but I'll worship the Lord. 
Whatever uh, the case is, the children of Israel don't have any water, and, well, the result is predictable, isn't it? They quarrel. They quarreled with Moses. And the word that's used for Israel's quarreling is sort of a a semi-judicial term. It's almost like they are hauling him into court. We're going to haul him into court. And the level of charges are quite serious. Because what they're saying is, it's almost saying we're going to put him on trial, we're going to sue him. And that's the other thing that we do, don't we? If it doesn't work out my way or your way, what we want to do is we want to blame somebody else. We don't like living with the grey area. It's got to be Moses' fault. There's got to be something behind it. But Moses, interestingly, while they are going through this, he, uh, he asks them, why do you test the Lord? Why do you test the Lord? Now, I don't know whether, again, like me, because we did the last time I spoke, I did go into great depths on the fact of how I can go on just a bit when things go wrong. But here it is. I want you to imagine, Nigel, when you are not there, going on. Okay? It's not, David and Maureen don't do this. David could never speak for three days on a problem. Not at all. Okay? What is Moses's perception when we go on and on and blame and do all that sort of stuff, Moses' perception is this. You are testing the Lord. What does that mean? Back off. Back off. You are testing the Lord. In verse 3, Moses lets us know that, what, uh, that his response or, uh, didn't help the situation much. Because not only were they grumbling, but now they're doing it sort of against him and it's getting us, it's getting worse. What happens here? So they're testing the Lord, they're quarrelling, they're not facing with the facts where sometimes things go wrong, they think it's not an accident, and then eventually we come down to it. We come down to what happens when we go down this line. Because they say to Moses, Moses, you brought us out of here to kill us, to kill our children, and to kill our cattle. Yeah, no, right, Moses, yet he did. It sounds bizarre, doesn't it? But this is what can happen when we go down a track that we shouldn't actually go down. Because you can imagine that Moses is living a carefree life in Midian. He's quite happy just looking after a few animals over here. And he thinks, yeah, what I'll do is I'll just leave this. I will travel over to Egypt and I will set up the Pharaoh. That's good. I'll con one of the greatest rulers on the face of this earth. Because I have got a grand plan. I will get all these millions of people out of here. This is my thinking. And when I get them to about here, I'll kill them. It's a great idea. Fantastic. Let's leave the family and do that just for the hell of it. Now, you think that's ridiculous. But how many times do you and I get things out of perspective? How many?
many times is it bigger than it should be, wider than it should be, longer than it should be? How much time have we given on it? We would never say, would we? Oh, Moses brought us out to kill us. But do you know, you, you and I have probably said the same thing. And what has happened is this thing that we've forgotten faith. We won't say, we say, no, this is an accident. We're grumbling. We can't live with the fact that it's all going wrong and I don't know why. We're giving it some and it becomes out of perspective. The journey we've gone has gone worse as we've moved on like this. But we would never do that. The word grumbling is lovely because the Hebrew word of the word grumbling is this, a mob action. So what we get an idea of is this is now explosive. You know those things because I know those things. I'm going on so much that Kelly's trying to calm me down. I will not be calmed down. You can always tell your chin goes up a bit. Kelly's trying to stroke. Just leave it. This is where they are, okay? This is where they are. The issue here is just simple. There is no water and Israel is not trusting God. Now what does that mean? It means that if there was water, they would. That's the simple thing, isn't it? Water! We'll trust you. No water, we will not. What does that mean? It means simple this. Lord, I will worship you as long as our things are like I like it, the way that I want it. And by, by the way, Lord, can you just hurry up and do that now, please? And then I'll worship you. It's interesting that you can say things like this, can't you? I I don't mind worshipping God as long as my marriage is not like this. I can't possibly worship God when my marriage is like this. Or, you know, I can't possibly worship God because my job is like this. And I... It is so difficult to worship God when your children behave just like this. What does that mean? It simply means this, that worship has become conditional. That now I've got conditions on it. That I want God to do what I want, I want him to do it how he will, and then I will worship him. Do you know what the essence of worship is? God doing what he wants, when he wants, how he wants, and we worship him anyway. That we are in danger of becoming conditional worshippers. But God has called us to be unconditional worshippers. How do we press through in the kingdom of God? How do we plant churches? How do we grow churches? Not by being conditional, but by being unconditional worshippers. This is what we are called to. Lord, you're my God. I will trust you. I will think that you are good or wise. And I will do this whether you do it my way or not. So, 
God's response to the failure of his people. What does Moses do in a crisis? Four to six. First, well, there's the trials and the testings. Then there's God's grace. And now we get through to how God responds. His response is interesting. In this great trial, he prays first. Now, I have to say this is not my immediate response. Now, I know it's your immediate response. I know what sort of people you are. You are the problem pray people. So I don't have to teach you much on this subject, do I? But Moses goes to the Lord in prayer. What is he doing? He's modelling what we should do. And it is quite a challenge. But I want you to note how he does this. How he does this. He says this. When he goes to God in prayer, he says, I want you to know, Lord, that I'm just coming to pray about these people. And then he goes on to explain his circumstances. Now, I want you to just catch this. They have got a lack of drinking water. Okay? That's their problem. Here's Moses' problem. They are about to stone me. So here we've got lack of drinking water on this hand and the people want out. Here we have a person on this hand who has his life is about to end. Of course he wants out. But what does he do? He says, I'll pray. I'll pray. Let's pray. Let's get this sorted out, Lord. Now I think this, that Moses has as much cause to be tempted to distrust God as the Israelites do. His life is on the line. Their life is on the line. He prays. It's his response that is outstanding. He resorts to God. So what does God do in response to his prayer? He says to Moses, he gives him some practical instructions. Here's the first one. Moses, you go ahead of the people. You walk in front of the people. Now, I don't know whether, we haven't got time to go into the, to this, but I don't know whether you desire leadership. I don't know whether you desire to, to have me job. But sometimes, some of the cost of being is that you will be prepared to walk in front of the people. That you will be prepared, with all that's going on, to set out before your God. It is the challenge of leadership that you go first. That you experience it. You go. You set the example. Come on, Moses. You go first. If you desire leadership, you go first. You go first. Then the second thing that he says to him is this. By the way, Moses, you're not going to do that alone. I want you to take your elders with you. And that's another great point in leadership. If we're going to build leadership, we have to build it by team. Come Moses, take your elders with you in front of the people. Show something different. That's the second thing. The third thing is this. I want you to take the staff and with the staff, you're going to hit the rock. This is the same staff that you had when you did it with the Nile, by the way. I want you to take a bit of wood and out of that wood will come water. Here's the third lesson. 
in it that what Moses was being taught here is that miracles don't come through the extraordinary. Actually, they come through the ordinary. They come through a staff like you and me. They come through just you. You and I need to realize that we are just like that staff. We can, we can be the people that see the miraculous come. We've got to be braver and more courageous than ever we are to see the kingdom come because God has chosen just a load of staffs and he wants to demonstrate that the ordinary can be made supernatural just by a staff. If you notice in verse 5, it says this, because you use that to, uh, to, to strike the Nile, you use that staff, How do you know that God wants to use you to do the extraordinary things? How do you know that you're just not an ordinary staff? Because I could challenge you to do exactly what God was challenging you to do with Moses. You know that over the years, God has done extraordinary things with you. And the reason that he's done those extraordinary things with you is that he wants you to resource those things to stir you in faith so that you would continue to do those things. Those things that you know that God did extraordinary things with you are not just so that they're like a shelf or a book that you can put in line. No, they are the resource so that we can go and do some more miracles for God. Then in verse 6, God tells Moses what he's, uh, what, for, uh, what he's going to do. First, he says, Moses, I'm going to be there, standing there before you when you get there. Do you hear that? I will be standing there when you get I'm just walking out with this staff. Before me is just a rock. I am nervous and God says, I'm going to be there when you get there. Isn't that wonderful? Well, I'm just going to go and pray for that. I'm going to be there before you get there. Secondly, he says to Moses, strike the rock when you get there. Just do it. Do it. Just do it. Don't make up great prayers. Just do it. Thirdly, he says, I'm going to uh, provide water and then he said the people that are going to drink are going to drink it. And God continues to demonstrate unreserved mercy, mercy for them in the wilderness. It's uniform. The people disobey and God blesses them. The lesson is not it's okay to disobey God. And that's no big deal. No, the lesson is this. The lesson is simply this. That I am an extraordinary great God of grace and mercy. That actually it's not dependent on you, it's dependent on me. And that even, even in your travels through the wilderness and your attitudes in the wilderness, I will still extend grace and mercy to you. I think that's wonderful. I think it's absolutely outstanding. And even when God goes to give the Ten Commandments, he will remind them of this. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. We have to remember this, that we actually are going to build nothing. God is going to build everything. This is not dependent on performance. It's dependent on him. 
We need to be obedient, but he does the work. It's the Lord who heals, the Lord who provides, the Lord that we trust in. It's about him. We gather to him. We don't gather to, to just because we need this and need that. No, we gather to him. He's everything. He is the Lord in the wilderness. Okay, lastly and shortly, God's actions explained. In verse 7, Moses interprets the meaning of the event. His, would you, I, mean, I just find this mad. Here we get God's divine assessment on, on what happens. Let's change the names of the places to Massah and Meribah. I just think that's mad. Because if you were going to encourage people, would you change that? Let's encourage the people. Let's change the name of Gateway Church to Massah and Meribah Church, Wrexham. Because why is that? Because I know what sort of people that you are. Let's, let's call the church after the people. Great idea. What will that do? It will encourage people to follow and join our church. Okay, okay, Lord, what does Mary Bar mean? It means quarrel. What does the other one mean? It means they tested God. That's a real encouragement, isn't it? It's a real encouragement. But that's how God sort of saw it. But in the midst of all this, they say some words that I think are quite challenging. And that, and that is that they suggest that the Lord is not amongst us. They almost want to take on God. And I think that we must be careful when we assure people that it's okay for them to be angry with God. Have you heard that? I was really angry with God. I was re- he really cheesed me off Wednesday. Didn't read my Bible. Didn't watch the God channel because Wednesday he did not do. Now where do you get that from? This is what the people were going through. Where you get that from is Hezekiah actually. Because what Hezekiah does is that he seems to take his deepest needs and his most painful questions and he stands on a wall and he asks God questions. He says to God, how can you do this? I don't understand why you're doing this. It doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem good. It doesn't seem wise. That's basically. There are two things. One is the heart of the man asking the questions. Because what Hezekiah was saying was this, even though I have these questions, what I will do is if the things stay the same, is I'll still worship you. That's a key area, he, which he wasn't asking the questions straight out. His heart was, I'm asking the questions, I don't understand, but if things don't change, I'll still follow you. So he's not just saying, oh, I'm cheesed off with you. Therefore, I hold back my tithe. Because what happens is that if we don't have that in our heart, what we do is that basically we call God onto the carpet. We look at heaven and we say, how dare you do that? Who do you think that you are doing that 
in this circumstance. That's what we do. Now, if God's to be trusted, he's got to be trusted as God. He's already shown that he's trustworthy. And I think, actually, it's very presumptuous of us to say, how dare you? He's God. He is God. He is God. Satan came to the Lord Jesus Christ and said, why don't you throw yourself from this pinnacle of the temple and let God catch you? He'll do it after all. The Bible said he'll command your angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up so that the Lord will not strike a foot against the stone. And Jesus said, it is written, do not put the Lord your God to test. Do not presume on God. Don't make a demand and say to God, you should do this and if you do, I will do this. We do have to settle in our hearts. And I know that it's been a little bit of our theme. This is God. Will I still follow him? But finally, earlier I said that that the Apostle Paul says that Jesus is all over the wilderness story. Bear with me with just three things to look at. The wilderness, the rock and the water. Here it is. The wilderness is the journey that you are on between our salvation. That's Egypt. And, out, and beyond the Red Sea, our baptism. And towards the promised land, that's heaven. And we've seen that this wilderness will be tough. We won't understand it. It will be difficult. There will be times of testing. But God will produce some miraculous things in it. And here's the picture. Here's the first picture of this wonderful experience of wilderness that I've portrayed to worry you all. Here it is. That in the wilderness, there is a rock. What, my wilderness? Yeah. In your wilderness, there's a rock. You're joking. You don't know my wilderness. In your wilderness, there is a rock. There is a rock. In the desert, there is a rock. Remember this? And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the wind blew, and it beat on the house, but it did not fall because there was a rock in the wilderness. There's a rock in the wilderness. It is magnificent. Whatever I face, there's a rock in the wilderness. If this life should fade right now and within a week or two, I would end up in the Mylar Hospital facing the grimmest of things that me or my family would ever want to face. There is a rock in the wilderness. And I can think, come on. And I might not be able to speak to, understand people that come and visit me in the Mile Hospital, but I can lie there, peaceful, full of trust, and knowing that I will meet with my God because there is a rock in my wilderness. 
It is extraordinary. It is the thing that keeps these old bones going. There's a rock in the wilderness. Do not shout. (laughs) Phil Harmon, him. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. How many times I've sung it to death, but it is reality. I can say, Jesus, the immovable, sturdy, safe rock is there in the wilderness. But more than that, what kind of rock is he? Oh, you just got to cling on to heaven. Oh, no. Little thing. Rock. Okay? This is not the rock. Because some people think that that's what we have to do. Some people think, I've just got to hang on to Jesus and eventually I'll burst through into heaven and meet Peter at the pearly gates and my trousers are falling down. But, but do you know what I mean? That's how they live. If I can get there, just hold on to the rock, hold on to the rock, hold on to the rock, hold on to the rock. We're there. What rubbish! Who taught that, plonkers? Come on! It's not what the Bible says. What are we at? No, there's a rock in the desert, but it says this. On the last day of the feast, the greatest day, Jesus stood up and he cried out. Why? Why did he cry out? Because we don't get it. That's why he cried out. And he said this. If anyone first, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, this is what he said about the spirit. Will we get there? No, we can enjoy the wilderness. Come on. It could be great. We can get there. It can be dry, dusty. We can cling to the rock and the water comes from it and we can experience supernatural blessing in the wilderness. Why? Because Jesus is there. Magnificent. Wonderful. Do you know, I can look forward to the miler. Come on. I don't need to be dry. No, never. Jesus offers water. Come on. It is incredible. Don't be just a rock clinger. Klingons on the stock. No. Don't be it. I've met too many rock clingers. Come on. Be a rock clinger. 
who experiences the streams of living waters. Go to him. Ask him. Let him bless you. Let him thrill you. Be captivated by him. What did John Piper say about this question? This is my finish. The essence of believing Jesus is finding in him a satisfaction of our deepest soul first. Drinking is believing. Believing is drinking. Have you found out yet that he alone can satisfy your deepest need in your most difficult situation? Come on. Finally, therefore, I don't have to worry. Simples. Let's pray. Jesus, we want to thank you that you are a rock. We want to thank you that you are a rock in the desert, that you are a rock in the wilderness. But more than that, you are a rock from within. Streams of living water will flow to you, from you and to us, that we do not need to be thirsty in the desert because Jesus is there. We can cling to him and he will provide water and we will be able to march on to the promised land because Jesus is there. Thank you, Lord. And I want to pray for anybody right now that is going through their own wilderness experience. I pray, Lord, as you revealed the rock to Moses, would you reveal the rock to them? And out of that rock, Lord, would you spill your streams of living water and refresh them in the name of Jesus. Amen.